Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke and this is the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, got a humdinger of an interview for you today. Before I get into it, real quick stuff for you to know. Number one, I'm still doing the thing where I will give a shout out to your team or to an individual in vet medicine that you're like, this person needs to be celebrated. I will make a video celebrating that person, just a short thing. I can't do, I'm not going to do a multi-minute monologue, but if you got something awesome and you're like, this person is amazing and I want them to know him, know it and I want them to hear it from you, Rourke, I will do that for you. All you got to do is leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and then shoot me an email. The email address is podcast at drandyrourke.com. That's podcast at drandyrourke.com and say, hey, I left a review and this is the person I'd like you to shout out and this is why I want you to shout them out. And I will totally make you that video. That's, no, that's number one. Number two, we are still giving away $100 a week. All you got to do is be signed up for the Dr. Andy Rourke newsletter. Head over to drandyrourke.com and get signed up. It's not a salesy thing at all. It's 100% just um, podcasts when they come out. It is articles on the website and it is breaking news in vet medicine. And that is it. It's just keeping you up to date. And we like to be able to say hi. So oh, that's how we're doing our, our giveaway. So that's the newsletter, $100 a week giveaway. It is generally being won by technicians, but we've had some doctor winners recently, so that's cool too. Last thing is, if you're at the VMX conference in Orlando and you see me and you'd like to say hi, I would love that. Please take this as an invitation. Come up, say hi. I'm totally happy to take pictures with people, um, but just know and feel welcome to say hello because I love to meet you guys who listen to the podcast. And so, um, so yeah, I hope to meet some of you down in Orlando. Now... Let's get into this episode. This episode is going to rattle some people. This is Dr. Uh, Brennan McKenzie. He is the author of Placebos for Pets, The Truth About Alternative Medicine in Animals. Uh, Dr. McKenzie is a veterinarian. He went to University of Pennsylvania for vet school, and he has practiced as a general practice veterinarian. He still does practice. In addition to his clinical work, he has served as the president of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Association. He's lectured on evidence-based medicine at numerous veterinary conferences, and he has published journal articles on such topics as overdiagnosis, cognitive bias in veterinary clinical decision-making, and the philosophical underpinnings of evidence-based and alternative medicine. Since 2009, Dr. McKenzie has managed the SkeptVet blog and the associated social media outlets, including a series of science-based pet health videos on YouTube. I learned of Dr. McKenzie many years ago as a new graduate uh, back in 2009. Um, I found his SkeptVet blog and have kept up with it because he writes about cool stuff and he uses a ton of evidence to back up what he says. I really like his book. I think that we should have it in all of our practices. This is going to irritate some people when we get into it. So let me just say two things up front. Number one, um, his opinions are his own. So I do like a lot of what he says. Um, but just because he says it doesn't mean that I endorse it. Um, it is an interview after all. So just be ready for that. And then number two, um, I, I stand by what I said. I like his book a lot. And if you're interested in what the science says about alternative th- therapies, that's, uh, that's diet, like raw food diets, nutritional supplements, things like that. This is this is worth it. So he um, he really tries to back up what he says. I like a lot of the research that he's done. This is a great resource. I hope you guys will get a lot out of it. And with that, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the co. 
of shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Hey, everybody. I am here with Dr. Brennan McKenzie. Guys, this is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time. I have been reading his stuff for literally years. Um, I was so enthused when he agreed to come and be on this podcast. And so let's talk to uh, to Brennan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Andy. Thanks for having me on. It's my, it's my pleasure. Man, there's so many things that you and I could talk about. Uh, I don't know how familiar our listeners are with you. My goal is that they'll be a lot more familiar after this conversation. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about, uh, well, I'll just say right up front, let's talk, we're going to talk a little bit about your brand new book, which just came out uh, about a month ago, and uh, Placebos for Pets, The Truth About Alternative Medicine and Animals. How's that experience been as a, a published author? And it was uh, everything you thought it would be? It is. It's been it's been exciting. You know, the book is a long time coming. I, I've been writing on uh, my blog for about 10 years, and I've had the idea multiple times to to make something more accessible uh, to people who are not maybe on the internet all the time and uh, and it's been a project that's stopped and started several times and and so it's really exciting to have it finally out there and available for people well i i found you through your blog and it, it i must have found you right around the time you probably got started which is not um not surprising i guess i was i was, did a lot of social media you know 10 years or so ago getting started and and uh, so I was, I was definitely very aware of people in the space, and and that's when I found your blog. Your blog is the Skep Vet. Why don't you unpack that and kind of just a little bit about that, and then I want to sort of do a deep dive of how you got into your area of expertise. Sure. So uh, what I found when I started in practice was that there were a lot of therapies my clients were interested in that I didn't know very much about. Um, and right. of course, when you start in practice, there's a lot you don't know very much about. There's definitely a learning curve. Uh, here in California in particular, alternative therapies are quite popular, and uh, they are often not covered in great detail in the veterinary curriculum. So to be a conscientious clinician, I made an effort to learn everything I could about these things. When clients would come and ask me about acupuncture, chiropractic, homeopathy, uh, I wanted to find out what the evidence said, what the science said, what the claims made for those things were, so that I could give them honest and informed answers and guidance. And that began as a personal journey. It led me to writing uh, handouts for clients because I find that you know these are dense and complicated topics and you can only cover so much in a 15 or 20 minute office visit. And I wanted people to have something in hand to read, to think about. At some point, having put a lot of effort into making handouts like that, I thought, well, why don't I make those available to a wider audience, to other veterinarians or technicians who might be interested in using that information or not have uh, the time to do the research on their own, as well as to pet owners. So I started the blog primarily as a way to make those resources available. And it grew from there. I found that that you know there was an endless list of things to investigate and discover. And the more widely known the blog became, the more people would send me requests to say, hey, I've heard about this thing. You know, What do you think? Is there any research? Is there any reason to try it? And gradually over the years, it's gotten bigger and bigger. I've drifted so that, that I write about a lot of things that actually don't have anything to do with alternative medicine anymore. I, I try to apply sort of the same evidence-based medicine approach and scientific standards to everything that I do. And, uh, and a lot of my writing covers uh, conventional therapies as well. So that's how it got started. Yeah, your, your blog early on was hugely helpful to me. So I'm in South Carolina. Um, I think I had the same experience that a lot of practitioners out there have where we're racing to keep up with the pet owners 
they're they're coming in very enthusiastic about an alternative therapy, a new product, you know, something they've been told about, something that their their friend used. And I'm kind of back on my heels and I want to be able to speak intelligently on this. And I want to give them good advice and I want to protect their pet. And for a myriad of reasons that you and I will get into here shortly, it, that resource isn't necessarily there for veterinarians. We we just can't keep up with the speed of gossip. And so that that's when I found your site those years ago. I love the the philosophic journey that you kind of made. And you sort of lay this out in your book because I think I think you describe so many of us in vet medicine where we come out of vet school, we just want to do the best job and we want to be open-minded. And we look at medicine and we say, I don't care what you call it. If it works, I want to integrate it into what I'm doing. And we can just take these medicines and let's just apply rigorous scientific standards to them and then we will be able to confidently, comfortably practice alternative medicines as well as traditional medicines. And then I think that we all succumb to the frustration when we realize that that's not really possible. Can you talk about about that? Sure. I mean, the first issue is whether the concept of having a category of alternative medicine even makes any sense. You know, what does that really mean? Um, there is there is uh, uh, evidence for or against various therapies. There are plenty of therapies that we don't have much evidence regarding at all. Um, and and I don't think as as I think you know we've discussed before that it makes much difference where these things come from. The the distinction between alternative and conventional is kind of meaningless. What we really should be thinking about is does it work or doesn't it work? Is it safe or is it not safe? And the core question there is how do we know? I'm a big believer that um, science is the best way to find out what's safe and what's not, what's effective and what's not. Um, and unfortunately, as you were, I think, implying, there's often not as much science as we'd like. There's often not as much research evidence available for anything we do in veterinary medicine. And that's, you know, the economic reality of our profession, right? That 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 the evidence we have has to be uh, from studies that are designed and conducted, and that costs money, and, and there are problems with commercial uh, organizations and companies funding research and the potential bias that that introduces. So oftentimes we're left without a whole lot to work with. Um, and I think one of the challenges in being in veterinary medicine is to find a way to make rational, scientific, evidence-based decisions about therapies at the same time that we have a, a lack of evidence and, and less than we'd like and, and lower quality evidence than we'd like. And unfortunately, what that leads all too many of us to do is to rely on anecdote, to rely on mm -hmm. clinical experience or stories that people tell. And one of the things that I get into in the book in detail is why, as compelling psychologically as our own experiences are, they're not really very reliable in terms of whether medical therapies work or don't work, right? I gave this pill to my dog and my dog got better. I am absolutely convinced that this pill is why my dog got better. But it turns out there are all kinds of reasons why that turns out not to be true more often than not. And there's a long history in medicine of therapies that were widely used and believed in by the finest minds in medicine for hundreds or thousands of years that turned out to be useless or even harmful. And it's, it's necessary for us as doctors to know, at least, and hopefully for, for our clients to know as well, that uh, anecdotes like that aren't really very reliable and, and science exists for a reason, because it gives us better information, better guidance. Sure. Half of what we know is false. We just don't know which half. 
Absolutely. As the saying goes. Yeah. So well, let's talk, let's unpack this anecdote thing a little bit because it's such a powerful force, I think, for all of us doctors, right? There, every one of us that has um, that has used a medication and had a pet have an anaphylactic reaction, you know, to that medication, we're terrified to pick that medication up again. You know, how sure. many of us out there have used a heartworm preventative or, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of my own experiences and I don't want to name names, but, but there are definitely some medications that my cortisol level goes up when I hold them in my hands and other vets wouldn't blink at all, but it's just, I have had cases go sideways sure. and they're, they are lightning strike rare, but, but I've been so turned off. We talk about that. Um, it, with a lot of time with staff training, I mean, we see some problems. One of the biggest problems that I think people struggle with to get pet, uh, vets to raise their pain management game is if you tried some new pain management therapies, things like that, and the veterinarian had a negative experience, like the one of the first couple of times. Sure, it is such a nightmare to get to go back and say, "Look, I know this one case was not ideal, or it didn't respond the way that we thought." But come on, man! Like we have to look at the bigger picture. You have to look at the research. I think it's really hard. And on the same side, we have this super positive anecdotal experience mm -hmm. where you know what I mean. We oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you've ever given an antibiotic to a cat who had cystitis and it got better, convincing yes. people not to do that anymore, even though all the research is overwhelming that most of these cats don't have bacterial infections and antibiotics can only hurt them, not help them is really difficult because it, those it, kinds of experiences yes. are very compelling even though they're not reliable. So how do those how do those anecdotal experiences pro and con play into medicine today? Are there ways that that we as practitioners can compartmentalize those things or how do you how do you get your head outside of that? How do you escape that trap, I guess? I mean, I don't think that anyone ever completely does. It's built into our our brains and how we make reasons reasoning and how we assess things. I think uh, one of the greatest books I ever read that led me down this path was a book by an author called Thomas Keita, a science writer who wrote Don't Believe Everything You Think. And it's a nice concise way of laying out the abundant evidence from cognitive psychology and from the history of science and medicine that what appears to be true simply isn't true more often than we would like to think. And I think making people and clinicians and, and pet owners aware of this is the first step. We have to acknowledge that even though these experiences will always feel compelling, your cortisol level will always go up when you reach for those right. medications. But you know that, that there's a reason to believe that those medicines are more beneficial than they are harmful. Um, the other side of it is accepting that uncertainty and risk are a natural part of medicine, right? Mm -hmm. um, we aren't looking for therapies that have no side effects because if they have no side effects, they don't do anything at all. They aren't really therapies. Everything is about risk and benefit. You know, the body is an incredibly complex system and we can never tinker with one part and achieve only the desired result and not have any effects on anything else. Side effects are an in unavoidable intrinsic part of any medical therapy that actually does anything. And we have to understand and accept this, that our goal is to achieve the best outcome for as many of our patients as we can. And the reality is that we can never completely or perfectly control the fact that some animals will respond in ways that we don't expect or that we, we'd wish they wouldn't. 
Um, so I think that it's intrinsic to sort of medicine in general that we have to accept there's some uncertainty. We make the best decision based on the best available evidence. Sometimes that evidence is going to be nothing other than our own clinical experience. And I don't tell people, never use your clinical experience, ignore it completely, because that's not reasonable. What right. I say is we have to try as best we can to have the humility to understand that our experiences and our observations and our judgment are limited and flawed, and that when there is better evidence from science, we need to try as best we can to set those things aside and follow that evidence. Right. So why don't you talk a little bit about your own sort of maturation in this space? Uh, you experienced the frustration I kind of mentioned earlier of kind of coming out and and sort of saying, wow, we can maybe we can just test alternative therapies and and put them up against what we've traditionally done and get clear answers and utilize those things. And then we sort of realize that, that that's not, that's not possible in a lot of cases, but you didn't stop there. You kind of dug in deeper in your clinical training to, to learn more about alternative therapies, um, you know, ep epidemiology, things of that nature. Can you sort of walk through your background a little bit? Sure. Uh, I mean, my, my background has, included science from the very beginning. I mean, I was a biology major as an undergraduate, though I was also a literature major, which, you know, helps when it comes time to write the book, right? Right. Um, and I did uh, early work in animal behavior. I did a master's degree in animal behavior, and I worked with primates. I was very interested in, you know, going to, to Africa and, and being Jane Goodall and having those experiences. And, and that gave me a lot of wonderful experiences in, in my life, but didn't prove to be a viable career. <laughs> and in yeah. the course of... Uh, of doing that, um, I ran across veterinary medicine. I worked with some veterinarians in the primate space and uh, and found what they did really challenging and interesting. That led me to veterinary school. And I think like most of us, when I came out of school, my basic goal was to be competent, right? I wanted mm -hmm. to not make mistakes yes. and I wanted to do the right thing. Right. And, uh, and I started where everyone starts, which is by doing what I was told in school and not thinking too hard about it, but simply trying to, you know, follow the algorithms and follow the textbooks and do what the more experienced doctors told me to do. Because I, I think, you know, you don't have any place else to start. We, we don't treat, um, you know, we don't teach critical thinking and evidence-based medicine as thorough as we could anyway. And novices are novices. We all need to, to have some time to build our own experience and our own judgment. As I went along, though, and I started to investigate, you know, alternative therapies, but also more broadly, epistemology, the whole science of how we know what we know and how we figure out whether therapies actually work or not, um, I came to understand that it's more complicated than that, that, that the expert that you, you listened to at the last conference is a person just like you and has the same uh, fallible anecdote-based reasoning that you do. And that while they have genuine expertise that, that you should pay attention to, um, they also have the same kinds of pitfalls in their thinking. And so what that led me to was evidence-based medicine, which is simply a structured way of using scientific research evidence and reasoning to make decisions, right? We all practice what is sort of jokingly called opinion-based medicine, uh, which right. basically means you do whatever, you know, the person with the most letters after their name tells you to do, uh, <laughs> and, or whatever happened to work or happened to not work for you the last time you had a case like that. Um, and we practice what uh, I, I like to call... Um, the just-in-case knowledge model, where you're supposed to memorize everything there is to know about every disease in existence, just in case someday you see a case and you have to use that knowledge. The human brain doesn't work very well that way, and it's not a very efficient knowledge model. So evidence-based medicine uses something we call the just-in-time knowledge model, which is about 
understanding what you need to know to deal with the particular patient and their unique individual circumstances in front of you, and then finding that information, understanding how trustworthy that information is and how it applies to the actual patient. So evidence-based medicine is not a, a radical new concept. It's just a structured way of learning how to figure out what you need to know, how to find that information and how to apply it in your clinical practice. Um, and I became uh, involved in what's called the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Association, which is a group of veterinarians interested in this and in promoting and teaching this approach. Um, I was president of the organization for a while. And that was part of the journey, which eventually led me to doing my master's degree in epidemiology. Epidemiology is just the science of how we apply research evidence to medicine to figure out what works and what doesn't and where diseases come from. Um, and, and there are a lot of details. If you want to take a look at the scientific literature, most of us read the abstract and the discussion to the paper, and then we just take the author's word for whatever it says. But it turns out that, that scientific research is complicated, and, and reading those papers and understanding what message you should take from them and whether it's the same as the author wants you to take from them is in itself a discipline. And, and that was the next step for me, was learning about how to investigate the science and know whether or not that study really tells me what the author wants me to think it does. So there's a whole process, and, and I, you know, I understand that most of us as clinicians are really busy, and there's a lot to know, and I don't necessarily expect everyone to be as big a nerd as I am and, and to delve as deeply into this thing. And part of what I do with the book and with the blog is to try to simplify things and say, okay, mm -hmm. you know, what does the evidence say, and how much should we trust it, or how much confidence should we have in it? Um, and then, you know, here it is for you, so if you want to go on that journey yourself, uh, the resources and the information are available to you. Yeah, so I I love the book. Just just to be clear up front, uh, I got uh, the flu for Christmas. Santa Claus brought me the flu, and so I was. Oh, you must have been bad this year. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it was not. It was not fun at all. So uh, so I got the flu, which the only good time is uh, the only thing good good part of it is you have about a week of flat on your back time to watch TV and catch up on reading, and so I got. So I got I got to read uh, placebos for pets, and uh, and it's great. I think there should be a copy of this in every vet clinic. I I love it. I think that people who disagree with you or people who are huge advocates for um, alternative medicine should absolutely take time and and read through the book, um, regardless regardless of what your your thoughts are on complementary alternative medicine. This is just an excellent resource. Um, I think you make persuasive arguments for and against different therapies. I, I just I, I think there's so much condensed information here. It, it's really valuable for for anyone, regardless of whether or not this is a passing interest, meaning I just don't want to make stupid recommendations to my pet owners or if this is something that you're really excited about. So uh, so I do love the book. I, I do want to encourage people uh, who have an interest in here to check it out. Let's start at the mile high. Why don't you give us um, well, first of all, let's define the term. Let's talk about complementary and alternative medicine. So that's uh, that's right up front in uh, in the title. What it, what is complementary or alternative medicine? Yeah, and as I alluded to before, I think um, the the bottom line is I'm not sure that the term has any meaning. Um, what it's traditionally applied to 
um, initially is what we call alternative medicine. And, and that was called alternative because practitioners in the 60s and 70s, when some of these therapies like acupuncture and herbal medicine started to gain some popularity in the United States and in Europe, um, their initial thinking was these are truly alternative ways of approaching health and disease, completely separate from conventional science-based medicine. Um, mm -hmm. If you were to follow these therapies at the time, it was often recommended that you give up on conventional medical therapy altogether. Um, that hasn't proved a very easy sell. Uh, there are obviously a lot of benefits to traditional conventional medicines, and um, I think a lot of people are reluctant to completely change their life and, and give that up. So complementary medicine became uh, a term more popular in the 80s and, and going forward from there, which essentially said, okay, <clears throat> these therapies can be used along with conventional medicine, and they may have additional benefits or they may help to alleviate some of the side effects of conventional medicine. And even that was somewhat unsatisfying to practitioners of these therapies because it implies that, that as a complement to conventional medicine, it's a second-class status, right? Right. And so uh, not able to completely convince people to give up conventional medicine and not happy with this sort of second-class complementary situation, um, a lot of uh, people came up with the concept of integrative medicine. And this is the dominant term that we hear these days. And essentially that means let's look at all of our therapies, whether they be antibiotics or surgery or homeopathy or acupuncture, as tools in a toolbox. And the veterinarian mm -hmm. simply chooses the right tool for the right problem, irrespective of the, the provenance or the history of these tools. Mm -hmm. And that's a very sensible idea. It's very appealing. It makes a lot of sense. But it, it kind of papers over the fact that um, different therapies have different rationales, some of which make sense and some of which really don't. Different therapies have different levels of evidence that we can use to assess whether they work or not. And not all tools are the same. Not all tools should be treated the same. If you use an antibiotic for, uh, you know, an infection for which there is a culture showing you that this antibiotic works, that's very different from using, you know, uh, an energy medicine therapy like Reiki for balancing your internal energy source, which is ultimately supposedly the source of your urinary tract infection. You know, right. these are very different things and we shouldn't treat them as the same. So right. I, I like the idea of integrating any therapy that works into medicine, but I think we need to stop imagining that these are separate categories. If we apply a consistent standard of evidence to everything, if we apply the standards of science to all of our therapies, then ideally we'll know what works and what doesn't. Where that becomes difficult is that um, in order to do research on something, you have to have a, a hypothesis that makes some sort of sense and is testable. So right. if you have something like Reiki, which says, okay, there's this invisible, unmeasurable energy force in the universe that I can channel into my patients to help treat their disease, it's very difficult to do scientific research on that. There has actually been some, and for the most part, it shows that that if you blind people in appropriate ways, they can't tell whether there's any energy present or not. You know, it, it, it tends to suggest that this energy source doesn't exist at all, but ultimately that's kind of a faith-based concept, right? You know, you either believe in this or you don't. Sure. And that's great. People are free to believe in whatever they like, but it's not a very reliable basis for medical therapies, and it's not something that, that we can use science very effectively to investigate. So the idea that we should just study each tool scientifically and the ones that work we'll keep and the ones that don't work we'll throw out kind of falls apart if you're dealing with tools that you can't really approach scientifically because they require some sort of belief in something that science can't do much to, to evaluate. Sure. Yeah. You refer to it as, uh, as faith-based treatments. And I thought that that was, I thought that was an interesting sort of way to, way to define those specific um, therapies. 
the ones that it really does require the belief of the individual and it setting up some sort of external uh, experiment to test the hypothesis is very difficult. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of therapies that are classed as alternative have uh, long histories in some sort of folk medicine tradition, right? Right. Um, there was a, a folk medicine tradition in in sort of Western Europe and North America. It was the, the ancient Greek humoral system of medicine that led to bloodletting and purging and things like that. But it's largely been abandoned except for some of the, the herbal traditions that are still present. And so we, we tend to think of these as exotic, right? There are Eastern or, or African or Indian therapy systems. But the thing about all folk medicine all over the world is that it tends to have uh, a component of what we call vitalism, the notion that living things are defined by some sort of non-physical energy or spirit that, that creates uh, uh, the nature of all living things and that is involved intimately in the health or disease of the body. Um, so homeopathy and chiropractic and acupuncture and a lot of herbal medicine traditions all began with this notion that what they were really treating was the underlying sort of spiritual nature of the being rather than the physical body per se. And this comes from a time when we didn't have really any understanding of what the body was or how it worked. Right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't know that, that the blood circulated and the lungs exchanged oxygen. We just didn't understand what any of these things were for. So we created these explanations that were based in sort of invisible forces. Right. And a lot of that idea, that vitalist uh, philosophy, is still present in these therapies. So even though modern practitioners of a lot of these therapies will acknowledge uh, you know, the physical basis of some disease and the pharmacology of medicines and things like that, they still ultimately feel like there is something about health and disease that they can adjust with their therapies, whether you call it chi or, or vital essence, you know, different therapies have different names for it. And, uh, and that that is, is something that conventional science-based medicine is missing or is ignorant of. And of course, the problem with that is that if that fundamentally is your philosophical point of view, you're not going to be very convinced by scientific research evidence that shows the therapies don't work or this energy or essence doesn't exist. Right. So that's where it becomes a faith-based approach to medicine. And again, you know, I'm not one to argue against anybody's faith in anything other than to say that it hasn't proven very effective historically as a way of treating disease. In in Western Europe and North America, all of the... the uh, essence or energy-based therapies that led to things like bloodletting and purging didn't work. And, and we've abandoned them because they just weren't effective and, and science turned out to be a better way of figuring out how to treat disease. Uh, I think that the extent to which a lot of these alternative therapies retain those historical roots, it's a barrier to looking into them and seeing what might actually be useful and, and what we should abandon. Okay. So I, I love that in the book, you walk sort of through these therapies and look at them pretty individually. You know, so you talk about uh, homeopathy, you talk about um, uh, acupuncture, you talk about herbal medicine, you talk about dietary supplements, alternative nutrition. You've got, I mean, you've got everything all the way to cranberries and cupping. You know, and you sort of sort of break these things out. What are the therapies that you think um, are commonly lumped into this group? that really deserve our attention, that deserve our credence. I think you're you're actually certified in acu acupuncture, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So okay. I think that, that I, I honestly, I'll begin with um, what I think is probably the most promising, which is herbal medicine. I mean, there's no question that, that many of our conventional medicines come from chemicals found in plants, and that 
plants have uh, an incredible array of compounds in them that have effects on on the physiology of living animals. Um, there have certainly been cases of such chemicals being identified and purified and studied and developed and turned into effective medicines. That's a process known as pharmacocognosy. It's a very common conventional way to develop new medicines. So I suspect that, that herbal therapies probably contain a lot of useful potential medications. Mm -hmm. And herbal medicine is one of those areas in which it is relatively easy to abandon some of these, these folk medicine mythologies and to simply approach it scientifically and say, okay, people have used this, this plant for this disease for quite a long time. Anecdote isn't very reliable, but occasionally it stumbles across a useful connection. So why don't we take a look at what's in this plant, what com chemical compounds are there, and do some research on how they might affect the particular disease that we're traditionally using them for, or even since we know the basic physiology of these chemicals, what else might they be useful for? So I think herbal medicine is a, is a rich area that we could investigate. I think to make effective uh, scientific study of this area, we are gonna have to abandon our reliance on tradition and anecdote. And um, there's been some debate recently about a group called the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine, which is a group of, of practitioners of herbal therapies who are seeking recognition as a medical specialty from the American Board of Veterinary Specialists, which is the group that, that certifies specialties in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've been declined as a specialty because many of them still rely primarily on traditional Chinese medicine or other folk medicine approaches. Uh, they may incorporate scientific study of herbal compounds into their work, but they ultimately believe that traditional use is a sufficient and reliable basis for using herbal therapies and that we don't necessarily need to validate these things scientifically. So I think that there's a philosophical barrier that we have to overcome, but I think there's a lot of promise in herbal medicine. Okay. Now, in terms of acupuncture, um, you know, I am certified in, in veterinary medical acupuncture. There are a couple of different approaches to acupuncture. The most popular by far is what's called traditional Chinese medicine. And this is taught at a place called the Qi Institute in Florida, which is probably the number one training ground for veterinary acupuncturists. This is very much a traditional folk medicine approach. The, there's a lot of reliance on um, uh, traditional ideas like qi, which is an invisible energy force, or the correspondence between um, heat and cold and wind and damp, and a number of sort of metaphors that have been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine as a guidance for how to do acupuncture, what to treat with what sort of therapies. And it's integrated with herbal medicine and uh, something called Tui Na, which is a kind of massage. So it's a fairly comprehensive alternative to scientific medicine. And, uh, and I, don't, you know, I don't find that a very reliable approach. Um, there are, however, some practitioners who are trying to look at acupuncture in a more scientific way. Obviously, poking needles into the body has physical effects on the body, and you can measure those, and you can do some scientific research on what, if any, if benefits that might actually have in clinical patients. Uh, Dr. Narda Robinson is a veterinarian and an osteopath who's been a professor at uh, Colorado State University for a long time, and she has created... Uh, a training course in veterinary medical acupuncture, which tries to sort of avoid a lot of the folk medicine mythology and metaphor and approach acupuncture in a fairly rigorous scientific way, uh, which I think is the most promising approach. Now, I will say I took the certification largely in an effort to sort of openly and, and fairly and thoroughly engage with the material. Acupuncture is 
very complicated. The research literature is enormous. There are a mm. lot of problems with how we do studies. It's very difficult to create a good placebo to fool people into thinking they've had acupuncture when they haven't, or to fool practitioners into thinking that they're doing acupuncture when they're not. You really can't do that. So it's difficult to study. Um, and I wanted to really dive into that pretty deeply. So taking the training course, uh, learning all of the materials, doing a, a there was a two week uh, a weekend long practical course. We had to go and actually do physical acupuncture therapy and work with acupuncturists. Was a way for me to investigate that. At the end of the day, I'm still not very convinced that there's a lot there. Uh, I think that the best we can say is that there are are physical effects to needling, particularly with electrical stimulation, that might potentially have some benefits. And there's really very little compelling evidence yet that that's actually true. Most of the claims for acupuncture are still relying on anecdote and clinical experience or historical tradition, which I just don't think are reliable. Um, so my approach in the clinic is to say to, to clients, okay, I have a lot of clients who are interested in acupuncture. And in the past, the only way for them to have that therapy is to go to a Chinese medicine veterinarian who unfortunately will often discourage conventional science-based therapy, put them on raw diets, put them on herbs that haven't been tested, do a lot of things that I think are risky and not reliable. Um, so I will say to clients, look, I'm not sure how useful acupuncture really is. I think the risks are pretty low as long as it doesn't lead us away from conventional science-based therapies. So I'm willing to, to do this for your pet as long as you're willing to continue with what I think of as, as more reliably evidence-based therapies. You know, please don't take your old dog with, with arthritis off of their NSAIDs because I think those are, are safe and effective proven therapies. Acupuncture might have some additional benefit. I'm not totally convinced, but I'm willing to try it as long as we continue with, you know, that sort of therapy. So that's kind of my approach. I, I like that a lot. I, I think a lot of it is a communication challenge for us as practitioners as well, because we have pet owners who come in and they're excited about uh, an, an alternative therapy or something new that their, their friend has had uh, anecdotal success with things like that. I don't want to lose that person as a client. I don't want to, as you said, I don't want to let them go whole hog out into the world with no guidance in evidence-based medicine. I, I do very much like your approach of, of talking to them honestly about what does the research say uh, what is the safety? And then sort of making that agreement with them of, I will support you in this way. I want to make sure that you stay engaged in these therapies that we're using. And, and I just, I think that that's the most productive conversation. I think that we, we can, uh, if we're too stringent here, uh, we can, we can unnecessarily lose clients. I think, uh, there's some clients we'll probably lose no matter what, sure. um, you know, but, uh, but that makes a lot of sense to me as far as, walking with them as they uh, sort of follow their interests and still keeping their pets safe and keeping them engaged in what we know works well. Can can you speak a little bit about dietary supplements? I think that's probably, so So I think raw, raw food diets and I think dietary supplements are probably the two biggest places that we as practitioners run into alternative therapy that's being driven by by pet owners. When they come in and they say, I have this supplement, I've been taking this myself, um, I'm reading a lot about, about raw food diets, um, I'm seeing benefits to them. I think a lot of us end up kind of back on our heels and maybe we either feel like we don't have the research that we, uh, that we wish we did, or especially when you get in the nutritional supplements, there's just, there's so many mm -hmm. and the, the lack of, of consistency 
between products uh, of this that are that are labeled the same. You know, your sure your um, whatever your your CBD oil products, for example, are all over the map as far as what's in there. Uh, that makes it extremely challenging. Can you sort of speak to that supplement industry, I guess, and then tips for the trenches? You know, what what are what are your sort of uh, guidelines for for negotiating these conversations in the room? Sure. I mean, I, I try to talk to clients in terms of uh, potential risks, potential benefits, and the amount of evidence we have so we can sort of have some level of confidence in our conclusions about those things, right? Um, I don't think it's it's useful to be for or against something so much as to understand what do we know, what don't we know, and what are the potential risks and benefits. Uh, with dietary supplements, it's complicated. I mean, there's no question uh, that these are unlike, you know, some things like homeopathy or Reiki that, you know, pretty clearly don't have any effects at all. These are things that clearly can have real biological effects. I think the first mistake that most pet owners make is to assume that there are benefits without risks, that these things, because they're supplements, are somehow different from drugs that they can only have benefits and not have risks. And there's abundant evidence now that that's not the case, that dietary supplements, um, if they have benefits, can also have serious risks and, and cause harm. Well, you you refer to it in the book, uh, the, um, the appeal to nature fallacy. Why don't, mm -hmm. why don't, why don't let's, let's lay that down real fast as we sort of unpack this. Sure. I mean, there's a there's a, a very positive association with the word natural. Um, it's actually kind of hard to define, and I go through in the book talking a little bit about what does that even mean, right? If if you pluck a plant off the ground and eat it, you know, that's a natural therapy. If you grind it up and dry it and put it in a capsule, is it still natural? If you mix it with a bunch of other medicate, a bunch of other herbs and and apply it according to some complex folk medicine system, is that still natural? You know, where do we draw the line, right? And um, so I think it's difficult to even say what's natural. Is glucosamine natural when you take, you know, bovine tracheal cartilage and grind it up and dry it and package it in capsules and ship it around the world? I don't know if that's even a natural therapy. But even if you accept that such a thing exists, you can distinguish between natural and artificial, there's a tendency to believe that something that is natural is inherently safe and good, right? Mm. And, and I think nature gives us plenty of examples where that's not true, right? Botulism and, and salmonella and rattlesnake venom and uranium and asbestos, these are all absolutely natural. Found in nature, humans had nothing to do with them, and they're all clearly quite harmful. And on the other side, I, I think there's strong reason to believe that a lot of things that are clearly artificial, we've invented vaccines and antibiotics and sanitation, are certainly beneficial things. So. The notion that what is natural somehow helps us to decide whether something is safe or effective is really a misconception. Um, and it also, unfortunately, um, leads us away from a scientific assessment of things. So if you think a supplement is natural and you assume that it's safe, you're, you're wrong, and it's quite possible that that could be harmful. Um, but it also is just an approach to understanding how to evaluate safety and efficacy that I think leads us in the wrong direction. Okay. And so... Obviously, we see a lot of this in marketing pushes for nutritional supplements, right? Yes. I mean, the idea that you can call something natural uh, and, and that that will encourage people to buy it is uh, well established in the marketing world. And, uh, and that label is slapped on all kinds of things. And even, you know, practitioners of alternative therapies who make extensive use of the naturalistic fallacy and, and use this argument – will often complain about the fact that pet food manufacturers will say natural ingredients and, and from the point of view of a raw diet aficionado, commercial pet food is not natural in any way. So again, 
whether the term has any meaning inherently or not, it certainly doesn't as it's used in marketing. It doesn't tell you whether something is safe or effective in any way, but it is an effective marketing strategy. And I think trying to explain to people why they shouldn't rely on that term, why we should look more closely and specifically at, well, what's in it? How reliable is the manufacturing and the processing of it? What evidence is there for what it actually does or doesn't do is a much better way to approach these things. It's more complicated and it's more work. And that's why I try as much as I can to sort of help people by putting these kinds of assessments out there. But as you say, there's an absolutely endless plethora of these substances. They're not particularly regulated or, or supervised in any way. And it's impossible. It's playing whack-a-mole. It's impossible to keep up with, you know, all the things on the market. So we, as veterinarians, just have to do do the best we can to sort of teach the method and the approach, uh, even if we don't always have, you know, the answers on every specific supplement that we're asked about. Sure. Are there rules of thumb uh, that you recommend for veterinarians or guidelines or things that you sort of file away yourself? Because as you said, we're not going to be up on every supplement. You know, I have pet owners come in all the time and they pull out a bottle of, uh, you know, a, a mixture of herbs and say, mm -hmm. what do you think about this? And, and they go, I got, I have no idea if I'm not... Uh, if sure. I don't happen to be familiar with this brand, especially if I'm in the exam room, you know, I, I'm kind of back on my heels. Do you have a survival guide for, for those types of conversations sure. I mean, to make them effective? The first thing I say to a client when they hand me a bottle like that is I say, okay, what you want to understand is that um, there is no regulation. This company can pretty much say whatever it wants about this product, and they're unlikely, you know, to have to do anything to prove if it's true or not. Um, and the idea that this can help your pet without having any risks isn't really reliable. If you're using this to make something better, it's a drug and it could potentially have side effects or effects that you don't want as well. Once that's understood, sometimes we can go through uh, the issue of, of, you know, individual ingredients or the fact that, you know, if you, there are virtually never any clinical trials on any of these substances in dogs or cats. And, and, you know, it's hard sometimes to explain to people why that matters, but veterinarians should understand that, you know, you, if you can't find any clinical trial evidence right away, all you can say is nobody knows. Not only do I not know, but nobody else knows. And right. it is an opportunity sometimes to to talk about anecdotes a little bit, to point out that there there are actually some studies looking at uh, online claims for healthcare products in the human field, and showing that they are inevitably biased in favor of positive anecdotes rather than negative stories. People simply don't tell you when they take something and nothing happens, but they tell you when they take something and they feel as if they've experienced a miraculous cure. So online testimonials are not a reliable way to decide if something works or not. So you know you try to have these conversations with owners as best you can in the limitations of the time you have and the evidence that's available. Um, and the reality is that if, if they trust you, if you've established a relationship with a client, then hopefully it will help them to know that the best you can say is, I don't know if this is going to help, hurt, or do nothing at all. And you're right. rolling the dice and that's up to you. But here are some things that I would suggest doing in this case. Give them some positive actions to take that you do have confidence in. Right. Can you, um, so when we're talking about supplements, I think a lot of times, a lot of times pet owners want to do something like we Absolutely. know that. I think there's a lot of the drive for them wanting antibiotics and you say you don't need antibiotics, but they, they, they want it. And I think, it, I think it's this action oriented focus of, I need to feel like I'm doing something. Um, what do you, how do you guide those people who you say you just you you can feel you can tell this person is going to do something 
Um, are, how do you how do you point them or do you point them uh, t- to places with say nutritional supplements? Are there supplements that you do like that you think may be beneficial for pets that you're comfortable saying, look, obviously this is an area of interest for you. These are some products that I have had good experiences with or that there is research supporting. Are, are, do you have things like that in your sort of toolkit that you reach for? Sure, absolutely. And, and I would start by saying that it's not just pet owners. I have far more arguments with veterinarians about doing something when the right choice is probably not to do something than I do with pet owners. That, that you know, to justify our charges and the time we spend and the, you know, to feel as if we have the confidence and trust of our clients, we feel a strong pressure to intervene, even when yes. we know we're dealing with, say, a viral infection that's going to get better on its own and, and the best thing to do is to leave it alone. So for all of us, you know, that's a problem and, and pet owners and veterinarians suffer from that equally. What I say to clients in that situation is, um, going to depend a little bit on the context. So I start by, you know, saying, okay, if it's something that I know about, for example, glucosamine, I mean, that's by far and away the most popular nutritional supplement out there. It's been widely used for decades in veterinary medicine. Um, there's very limited evidence, a couple of clinical trials in dogs showing little to no benefit, um, extensive research evidence in humans showing probably no benefit in most cases. So the bottom line is probably doesn't do anything. On the other hand, there's also extensive evidence showing it probably doesn't do any harm. Most of our initial concerns about things like uh, dysregulation of uh, blood sugar and diabetics or blood clotting problems turned out not to be real concerns. So I can say to clients who are giving some sort of glucosamine product to their pet, look, I, I don't know this particular product and there's not much regulation, so I'm not sure it even has in it what it says on the label. If it does, probably isn't going to help, probably isn't going to do any harm up to you. However, <laughs> you know, your dog's 20 pounds overweight, and I know weight loss is an effective strategy for dealing with arthritis. Um, if your dog is uncomfortable, I have safe and effective pain medications that I can, you know, I do think that you can start by saying, here's what I know, here's my guidance, and then you can let it go as long as you can give them the benefit of your counseling and your experience on other things that they can do. Um, it's a rare situation where there really is absolutely nothing to do, and you can confidently say to them, that thing you want to try, you really shouldn't do. Right. The, most of the time, the best you can say is, I don't know if that's going to help or hurt or do nothing. So it's up to you. I prefer to work with things that I have a little more information about, but I'll leave that to your judgment. Gotcha. I, I do... I do like that approach. It feels much more sort of collaborative, uh, you know, with the pet owner and you're being honest. And we, I think we all know that ultimately pet owners are kind of going to do what they want to do at home. Like once they're out of our, out of our offices, we have very limited control over, you know, the care of the pet. So all we can kind of do is listen well, try to build a good relationship, you know, build trust, explain ourselves, um, and, and, and pick our battles. And what I've said, I've found though, I will say is that a lot of my clients do appreciate the fact that I have made the effort to study these things. You know, when they right. come in and ask me about glucosamine or CBD, and I can tell them what the clinical trial evidence says, or, you know, what the most recent study out of Cornell says about CBD that they haven't even heard of yet. I think they appreciate that. And I think that helps build trust. And I can also say to them, um, you know, over time, I don't know. I think this might turn into something useful, but for now, we don't really know if it's safe or not. And I do have clients who say to me, great, I'm going to stop spending my money on this really expensive glucosamine product if you can't tell me that there's a reason to think it works. Or, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm just using CBD because everyone says it's great, but if we don't really know, 
maybe I won't mess around with it. So we do have some influence. Um, I think yeah. I think it's worth at least engaging in the conversations. But as you mentioned earlier, communication is really critical. Yeah. You have to well, acknowledge their concerns and their needs. You have to show an interest in, in helping them. You have to show your own uh, effort in learning about what they're asking you about. And then you have to offer them specific things that you think are worthwhile doing and then let them make the choice. Well, let me let me put you on the spot and and give you a, a tough question and and uh, I apologize if this is if this is a hard one. Um, what what are you saying? So first of all, you're in California, so it's a little bit different than maybe the rest of the of the country. But what are you saying to pet owners who are coming in and asking about CBD oil? Because I know that veterinarians across the country we we we're, we're we're just asked questions all day every day, and we're limited in kind of what we can say or even how we can say it. Uh, you obviously have great depth of knowledge here. Um, what? How are you playing this when when you're faced with it? Sure. I mean, the first thing I um, that there are there absolutely is reason to believe that there will be benefits in some situations from CBD or other cannabis-based products. There, there's pretty good plausibility to the basic hypothesis. There's very limited evidence showing benefits in some very specific situations. You know, there are children with this refractory type of epilepsy that have responded to, uh, to CBD, um, and that's encouraging. And it's encouraging that in those trials, those children also had side effects because, again, if there are no side effects, it's not doing anything. So it's a drug like any other drug. And right now, we don't know a great deal about it. Um, the only two clinical trials done in dogs so far have found some you know, reasonable evidence of benefit for arthritis and no evidence of benefit for dogs with seizures. Um, neither of those single studies is the last word on the subject. Um, but I think it's an emerging area that's going to take a long time to have really confident uh, uh, ideas about. So what I can tell clients is, look, first of all, most of the products out there are not regulated. When these things came into the human market, when they were before they were legalized and in, in places like California, before there were uh, regulations regarding quality control, random testing found that most products don't even have in them what they say they do and have a whole bunch of other stuff they're not supposed to. So if you buy a product at random, there's a good chance if you buy a random product off the shelf that you're not going to get what you think is in it because there's no quality control for how these things are produced or marketing. So uh, if you want to use a product like that, I would look for one that provides you what's called a certificate of analysis. It means that they've sent it to a lab that is set up to test CBD products for humans and will do a pretty good job of at least telling you what's in it and that it's consistent in its quality control. Um, if you're using it for arthritis in dogs, again, there's some limited evidence that that might be helpful, and here are some side effects to watch out for. Sedation, uh, liver enzyme elevations, things like that. Um, there are also some pharmacokinetic studies showing that if you're using it at all, it's not bioavailable unless it's in an oil base. So if you're using a chew or a tablet, it's probably not doing anything. So again, if you want to try it, I would try to pick an oil-based product because there's the most evidence suggesting that may at least be absorbed and get into your dog and do something. If you're using it for pretty much anything else, there's really no reason at this point to think that it's helpful. Uh, most of the clients that I see uh, other than arthritis are using it for things like anxiety uh, or, um, or behavioral problems, and there's really no evidence in humans that it's helpful for things like that, and in fact, it may make some of those kinds of problems worse. I think in general, it's an emerging area that we don't know much about, and there are a lot of quality control issues. And that's how I discuss it with clients. It's risk-benefit balance. If you have started CBD and you haven't put them on an NSAID or lost weight or done any of the other more clearly proven things for your dog with arthritis, 
here's what I think you should do first, and then I'm going to leave it up to you what you do with the uncertainty about this product. Right. No, that, that's fantastic. So your book, again, Placebos for Pets, The Truth About Alternative Medicine and Animals. Uh, people can find it on Amazon. It's uh, super cheap on, on Kindle. I think it's like 7 or $8. It's a great deal. Guys, I am telling you, I um, pretty much... I get about every book on vet medicine that comes out. This one is really great. I do really recommend it. I really enjoyed it. If this is an area of interest for you, I highly recommend reading it. Even if you're skeptical, read it. If you're in support, read it. It's, um, it is fantastic information for, uh, for processing, thinking, for having in your back pocket when you talk to pet owners. I really would like to see these, uh, this book in, in vet clinics so vets can kind of pick it up and grab it when they, uh, when they want to refresh. So I love that a lot. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you, Brennan? So a lot of options. Uh, uh, the SkepVet blog is where I do most of my writing. Uh, and I also have uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts uh, under SkepVet. Um, where I post probably more frequently than I do the blog. I've just recently started a YouTube channel. I've done some short videos. We we mentioned Raw Diets uh, recently. That was my most recent video. So uh, I'm trying to reach out to as broad a population on the Internet as I can. Uh, and uh, and I'm always happy to take questions or feedback. Uh, some of my best uh, uh, blog posts or videos are ideas that have come from clients or people who, who are interested in a topic that I never even thought about investigating. So those are all good places to find me. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope you think about checking out Dr. McKenzie's book, Placebos for Pets, The Truth About Alternative Medicine and Animals. Gang, um, we really, really appreciate your feedback. I would love an honest review on iTunes for the podcast. That is how people find us. It means the world to me. Some of you I'll get to see at uh, VMX this week, and I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Be well. Talk to you next week. Bye.